0: Welcome to the UBC Center for Migration Studies podcast. My name is Sandra Schinnerl, manager of the Center for Migration Studies. I'm very pleased to introduce this special podcast episode of a conversation that took place at a symposium that was held on the migration dynamics of North America. There are a number of distinguished speakers who presented at this excellent event, and this podcast features two of them, Katrina Tapley, Deputy Minister Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship Canada, and Dimitrios Papamitriou, convener of the Transatlantic Council on Migration and co-founder and president of the Migration Policy Institute. It's moderated by my good friend, Daniel Hebert, who's also the professor of geography at the University of British Columbia. It is definitely worth a listen. And you should also be sure to check out the other podcasts presented by the UBC Center for Migration Studies by going to our website, migration.ubc.ca. At this time, I also want to thank our sponsors. We couldn't have presented the event or this podcast without them. They include the University of British Columbia's Killam Connection Award Program, the Migration Policy Institute's Transatlantic Council on Migration, the Immigrant Employment Council of British Columbia, and the Universidad Nacional Autónoma de México, otherwise known as UNAM. And before we begin, I would like to acknowledge that I am speaking to you today on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. And I am grateful for their stewardship of the lands on which I am able to live, work, and play. Thank you for listening.
1: It's going to be an armchair discussion. It'll be a little bit of a different format. Um, What's going to be happening is I get the great privilege of interviewing two of my friends, um, two people who I respect uh, hugely and two people who have lots and lots of experience and insights on migration issues. I'm going to first introduce Katrina Tapley. Uh, who has had a stellar career in government, She's been all over the place in government. She's worked in uh, areas of, of governance such as uh, fisheries and oceans, um, human resources. Uh, she's been in the Treasury Board. But, of course, I know her from her two episodes in uh, well, what was then called Citizenship and Immigration Canada and is now called uh, Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada. In the first instance, she was an assistant deputy minister. So when we first came into contact and got to see her really uh, effectively and nimbly handle issues of, of policy and uh, uh, with, with, uh, with great uh, uh, great effectiveness uh, back in the day. Uh, and then she took uh, timeout, so to speak, from immigration issues and went to the uh, Privy Council office where she was Deputy Secretary to the Cabinet of Canada. So she's met all those people that uh, we, we uh, see on television, seen them all up close and personal, but can't tell you anything about it, which is very annoying. Um, and and then more recently of course she's returned to IRCC as deputy minister so now she's in charge of really the the, the organization uh, as a whole um, and uh, I'll simply say that what you'll see is that she really understands both the larger context and has a, a crazy incredible grasp on the details too uh, of what is going on in terms of uh, uh, in terms of immigration policy in Canada and uh, the other main participant of the panel will be Dmitri Papa Dimitriou, uh, who was uh, also worked in government for a short stint. (laughs) I'll say short, maybe it seemed like a long time to you, Dimitri. I'm not quite sure, but. Short or long? (laughs) Yeah. But but for the last uh, 20 years has been doing uh, things outside of government and has in particular co-founded the Migration Policy Institute, has also founded uh, and been the convener of the Transatlantic Council on Migration. But what I really want to say about uh, Dimitri is he is the the king of frank conversations. Uh, So uh, you can probably expect to hear a few things that um, aren't aren't. Aren't often said uh in in, uh, in meetings. That's one thing I've learned about Dimitri. He's always uh, he's always giving a bit of a surprise. And the other thing I, I, I want you to sort of pay attention to is on the issue of migration, whereas most people see cacophony, see disorganization, somehow Dimitri is able to see a pattern uh, and and be able to sort of squeeze out some insights as to what's really going on underneath all that uh, apparent chaos and so forth. Um, and then also we were joined by Anja Ellerman, who is the, the director of the UBC Center for Migration Studies. And Anja is going to be uh, working with me as the, the moderator, in particular, handling the Slido questions. And that brings me to that tiny little thing at the bottom, dot. S-L-I dot D-O. That's how you get into the conversation in, in this session. Uh, this session will take about an hour. And what we're going to do is first, I'm going to ask a few questions of the uh, of, of, of my my two um, armchair panelists. Uh, and I'll always start with Katrina and ask a little bit about a Canadian perspective and then get Dimitri to follow up and talk a little bit more Uh, about other country perspectives, how Canada's seen, uh, these kinds of things. So I'm going to just make the long journey now from here to there uh, and get us started. So let's hope, yes, I can get the the microphone working again. All right, so I want to start us off by looking at three different policy areas and they kind of track the way this uh, this day is going. The first of the areas I'd like to do is is get a little bit more reflection on the kinds of asylum and protection issues that we were looking at this morning or thinking about this morning. So let's start there and and Katrina I'm going to I'm going to begin with with you. Uh, as I said in each case and what I'd like to get you to maybe amplify a little bit is uh, Glenn spoke really eloquently about what was going on in the asylum and and, and uh, protection space, but what he didn't talk much about, and maybe you could fill us in a little, is you know there's there's a the, the asylum system has been a little bit on pause uh, during the pandemic, and once the once the sort of full impact of the pandemic recedes. It's probably going to resume. Uh, and and a lot of those people that have been waiting on the other side of the U.S.-Canada border uh, will begin to knock on the door again and reassert themselves and their, uh, their requests for asylum. So I'm just wondering what kinds of thinking um, you're doing to the extent you can tell us what kinds of thinking you're doing around those, uh, those issues, how uh, your ministry is preparing a little bit for, well, what is seems to me at least to be kind of an inevitable uh, uh, set of things that are going to be happening.
2: Thanks Dan. am I Good there. Thanks Dan. It's a, it's a little humbling. I have to say to be sitting here between you and Dimitri Papa Dimitrio this morning and, uh, and trying to offer this perspective, uh, the two of you truly are are beyond experts in your field. Um, But here, your asylum challenges, and a lot of this got discussed in the previous panel, and so I'll try not to repeat, but from our perspective, you're right. From an irregular migration perspective in the Canadian context, it pales in comparison to what we just talked about. You know, we do not have 950,000 people sitting on our southern border. Uh, We are not looking anywhere close to 5 million Venezuelans anywhere near Canada. So, like, I I say this with a great deal of humility and respect for those who are dealing with much larger problems than we do. Uh, I think at our height in terms of irregular asylum seekers, as opposed to those who claim asylum, once they get to Canada or at border crossings or inland, but those who are seeking entry to Canada between ports of entry, I think at our height, I don't think we hit 35,000. And uh, so just, a little perspective on the problem. But one of the things that's happened over the last 19 months is we have an agreement with the U S and so for those who are seeking entry between ports of entry, we have been directing them back to the U S and have started to meter returns now and, uh, and to bring people back through, but that has had an incredibly uh, strong disincentive effect on those seeking to cross irregularly into Canada. And so uh, I do think there is a bit of pent up demand. And once borders restrictions continue to ease, and, uh, and we'll see what happens with the direct back regime itself. Um, then I do think we're going to see significantly more numbers of asylum seekers uh, try their, the the most famous route is through Roxham road between New York and Quebec. But there's also, there's not an insignificant number that comes through here in British Columbia as well. So it's getting ready to, to deal with that. And so it's looking at what have we done in terms of the asylum system to try and be able to to make it work. I think a previous minister coined the phrase, you know, uh, fast, fair, and final. And so we want that system. We want due process around this. And uh, we want to exercise compassion, but we want to make sure people are afforded due protection under the law. And so those reforms that have happened in the asylum system are really important reforms to have to focus on and what to look at. And, uh, and I hope they will stand us in good stead as we do this. The other, the flip side of this is maintaining public confidence in the immigration system. We run a big immigration system in this country. It's not just the 401,000 permanent residents that we're focused on this year. It's the... 800, 900,000 international students who are in Canada at any given time. It's the million temporary foreign workers who are here, never mind visitors. It's all of those populations. So we run a big, for a country our size, we run a big immigration system. And we run the big immigration system because we have a strong social license to be able to do so. And so what we have to watch is what erodes credibility in our immigration system. And I think we heard this from previous panelists. The notion that a government cannot control its borders and exercise those parts of its sovereignty is poison to an immigration system. And so on the one hand, you do want to show compassion. You do want to afford due process under the law. You want to respect the international treaties that Canada is part of. But we want to make sure that that we do this in a way that continues to demonstrate that integrity in the system. A couple of other things, and maybe I'll just pick up on where the previous panel was as well. Um, and uh, Glenn, I can't remember if you re- mentioned this, and that's MERPS. And I'm going to get the acronym wrong. The acronym's in Spanish, but it's the Regional Framework for Protections and Solutions uh, for Forced Displacement. This is Canada's chair year uh, at MERPS, and it's, uh, it speaks to the power of multilateralism that speaks to the power of working cooperatively and what we want to focus on and what we want to do so that you're addressing some of the challenges before, uh, before they show up at your border. Um, and the last, and I'll say, and I'll stop and then turn it over to Dimitri too. And that's the importance uh, the importance of working cooperatively but there are some big initiatives there there are two the global compact on refugees and the global compact on migration and this notion under the global contract on refugees of responsibility sharing and solidarity with refugee populations i think becomes increasingly important and i know that mexico had a strong hand in uh, in both of those global compacts i know that in some countries that these are uh, fighting words, uh, to quote the cartoons on Saturday morning. In Canada, it's not. And uh, and where we can foster increased cooperation on that multilateral basis, I think we all stand in better stead. So I'll stop there and turn it to Dimitri.
1: Thanks very much, um, Dimitri, I know that you sat patiently through two hours of a wonderful panel this morning, and you probably have three thousand opinions about what uh, about the various issues. Give us one or two of your thoughts on 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 uh, this issue of protection and asylum in the North American space.
3: I'm an person. Okay, so um, good morning everyone, afternoon, maybe it's after 12 o'clock. Um, a wonderful panel this morning.
1: Just hold it really close.
3: Hello, hello. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Um, the advantage of having a panel like the one that we had, or being here on this panel with Dan and Katrina, is that we all know each other so well that we all you know can anticipate what it is that the other person will say um that's also a disadvantage in the sense that it is important for us to move beyond our sort of range of comfort and say some hard things um this fellow um that i know very well like a brother oh frank sherry used to say 20-some years ago, perception is reality. You remember that, Gustavo, how many times we said that? How many times these young men said that? Well, you know, I think it is an irrelevance when you're trying to talk about a million, you know, individuals, unique individuals crossing the border and somehow pointing out that, you know, it's not 2 million. A million is a very large number, particularly considering that a few years ago, you know, we had a third of that number. And I know that, you know, we probably will figure out and probably the article that will come out has already figured out what was the proportion of people who had come over and over and over again when we were getting three or 400. But the fact remains... That's a very large number, and that freaks people out. I'm speaking a social science language here. It freaks people out. You also know that I don't have you know I don't speak for anyone I don't have the the burden and the pleasure of you know carrying the migration policy institute in my back like Andrew does, or carrying an entire bureaucracy that sort of deals with every possible issue and consequence of immigration, like Katrina does. You know, so I think it is extremely important for us to also say some of the hard truths. And there are many hard truths in all of this. And, I, you know, I jotted a couple of them down. Well Katrina was talking, but I forgot my glasses back where I was sitting, so I will I will do it this way. <laughs> okay. You know, we by nature, particularly us who have been professionals on immigration matters for 30, 40 years, perhaps longer for some of us, um, there is this tendency to basically try to say, well, and if we did a little bit of more of this or a little bit more of that, you know, and the implication that the, you know, the listener gets is that if we get them together, three or four or five of them, you know, something will change dramatically. I'm sorry, nothing will change. You know, people are talking about, you know, offering scholarships to would-be refugees. We should do this because it is a smart thing to do, but it has nothing to do with managing or controlling unauthorized immigration. Same thing with pathways. We can create more pathways, but we shouldn't allow people to understand that bigger pathways, because they'll never be big enough, bigger pathways would somehow change the facts on the ground. I'm so glad that Katrina talked about So clearly about the responsibility that public servants in Canada and politicians have toward the public that elected them. It's the ultimate test. The ultimate test is the license, the public gives you a license to carry out that function. It expects you to do it in the interest of the broader society, the country. Immigration is a public good, but it has to be managed, to use expressions from the previous panel. It has to be controlled. You can never reduce an entire function like immigration that's so broad that cuts across every possible policy portfolio across any government. Okay? You cannot reduce it to one or two things. Controls. Trying to stop people at the border is not the answer. But it is part of the answer. Because the integrity of the system relies very much on being able to do that well also. If you fail in that function, then you will have a failure, a political failure, down the road. Now, we live in confusing times, because times of big change are always confusing. Nobody has a crystal ball. I give lots of lectures where people ask me to peer around the corner. Yeah, and I give a lecture and and I peer. But I, I don't have a crystal ball. But the fact remains that it is extremely important for us to always be thinking one or two or three steps ahead. This is an essential of immigration or any other complex policy issue okay to actually not only see what is in front of you but going to go into a second order and a third order understanding of the issue and the most important thing for governments to do and the most difficult thing for governments to do is to do many things at the same time and do them well in the case of the united states we seem not to be doing <laughs> any anything <laughs> particularly well. I mean, Canadians should take some pleasure in the fact, you know, that regardless of whether they are the ideal system or not, they know whether we are. they are, I know where they are, they are better, much better than just about any other place, and much, much, much better than their country, their, their neighbor to the south. And this is simply a reality in all of this. It is essential that we understand and do that. If we lose support for the system by the average citizen, Frank knows very well, and so do, so do our Canadian friends, what will happen. You lose elections, you empower, you know, the, the extremists on the one side, okay, and then we all write lots of, you know, papers, et cetera, et cetera, about all the divisions and, and all this other stuff. This is the fundamentals of managing migration. I will say one last thing about multilateralism because I'm gonna use, however, a different word. Uh, one word, a word that was coined by uh, a uh, public intellectual of the first order that I, that's a good friend and I work with at the Carnegie Endowment, mini lateralism. Before you get to multilateralism and then to global governance, you have to fix things in your own neighborhood. So there is an orderly way of solving problems, work with Mexico, with countries that are but Mexico. In the case, you know, we've been honored to have a representative from, from Australia here, you know, with Indonesia and all of the other countries in the region. It is essential that we first take care and fix things with the people who are our neighbors because that is where you can have the greater influence. That's where cooperation can really bear fruit. In the United States for fifteen, the last 15 years or so, a lot of the effort, although these are my words, not the words perhaps that the U.S. government would use, uh, was to sort of extend, and I've used them myself, to extend the U.S. southern border to the south border of Mexico. That's fine. It's not good enough. It doesn't buy you much of anything. It is important that we think regionally first, then hemispherically, perhaps. And we need Canada in this, because Canada can always be th- sort of the north star of you know whether this makes sense or not. Because you know, as policymakers in the United States, we have pressure from the left, the center, the you know the, the right, and everything else. We will try just about anything. Or we'll make speeches. But if you have Canada as a steady hand in these relationships, you can actually make some real progress over time. It's not going to be solved tomorrow. And, you know, we all know the rest of it. If you have 1.4 million people, waiting you know, in front to, to find their day in an immigration court. You know, who does not understand that the longer somebody stays in a country, and I don't mean five or 10 years, I'm talking about two years, they develop roots in the community. The community reacts if you're just going to extract them out five years later and try to remove them. And that brings the number one challenge in the entire immigration system. What do you do with the people who don't qualify for protection? We're all focusing on protection. You want to save the asylum and protection system more broadly? Deal with the people who don't belong. And even for that, you need the cooperation of your neighborhoods. Of your neighbors, so these are some of the hard truths, and I will be a little easier in the, the remaining of the conversation.
1: Hard truths, indeed. Well, um, what I'd like to do in the in the next little bit. Uh, well, first, before I get to the next little bit, just to remind you about the Slido process. And if questions arise, uh, Ansha will be watching uh, the, the monitor she's been given to uh, to make sure that uh, they get relayed uh, to, to the panel. But anyway, I'd like to go and flip from the morning panel to what uh, to, to a bit of anticipation about the afternoon panel. And in the afternoon panel, we're going to be thinking more around the uh, economic side of all this. So we, you know. Uh, Of of course, beyond protection and asylum, there are issues of labor mobility, issues of uh, high-skilled mobility, and so forth. Um, Again, I'm going to start with Katrina. Um, From my understanding, at least, Canada seems to be the first out of the gate, basically, in wanting to very quickly resume full-on immigration. Uh, most other countries have been hanging back a little bit. Have been watching to see what goes uh, on uh, in the uh, uh, in the tail end of the pandemic and uh, in the aftermath of the pandemic. But Canada has made a choice to go right in and uh, ramp up uh, immigration to uh, to the largest historical levels uh, that we've we've ever seen. Uh, and I'd like you, if, if you could, Katrine, to reflect a little bit on. Uh, How that choice came about and and why um, uh, the ministry uh, believes it makes sense uh, to get in front of this one compared to other countries. And then secondly, to think a little bit about how the recovery is going to almost certainly unfold unevenly. Uh and how how is that going to play out in, in policy terms? We're going to see certain regions of Canada probably recover quicker than others. We're going to see uh unevenness that lurches in time about the recovery and so forth. How how is that maybe entering into uh into the mind of of the policy system as well? Sorry, just a simple little question for you.
2: No kidding. Um so let me start at uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, March 2020. And all governments were faced with the same question, which was shutting your borders. So Canada did. You know, we shut our borders and reasonably hard. But one of the first things that we came to realize is you can't shut your border hard in Canada. Uh, we're not an island. The integrated supply chain we have with the U.S. is incredible. And making sure that that supply chain remains open, uh, especially for essential workers in those industries, was key. Uh, The other was unless we wanted to eat frozen strawberries all year long, um, you needed seasonal agricultural workers. Uh, You needed them as essential workers to come in. And, uh, and work in the food production system that was here. And then the next you went to quickly was the healthcare system. And then all of a sudden, you're looking at a system that really continues to focus on immigration. And, uh, and the other, in 2020, we stumbled a bit on the permanent immigration side. And I have to say, it's the great paradox that we work actively, given our responsibilities at the border with the Canada Border Services Agency to keep the border closed, while at the same time we're running historic immigration levels. It is a bit of a paradox. So this year, when the government set immigration levels for 2021, uh, it decided to double down on immigration and the contribution that immigration makes both to the economy, but also to the society. And now is the time to do it. Now time to try and secure a bit of a competitive advantage for Canada. So it went to 401,000 for this year. It goes up to 421,000 by 2023. And, uh, and to do it, um, we had to break some rules. We had to break some of our conventional thinking on how we would achieve that. And the other was where we pushed collectively to see what the first border reopenings were. And so by November, 2020, we had the border reopened for international students. And uh, for students to come in, it's continued to be open for essential workers. For permanent residents, we managed to get the new permanent residents. We managed to get the border open uh, this year in 2021. It's now open for everybody who's double vaccinated, as you all know. Uh, But those were important milestones for the immigration system when needed to come in. And it just reflects the importance, reflects the double down on this. So if other countries are going to keep their borders closed and are going to keep uh, new permanent residents out. Then where can, or new foreign students out? Then where can Canada take advantage of this? And this is part of a war for talent. I make no apologies for this. And uh, and where we try and push for a competitive advantage against um, against others, we live in fear that the U.S. actually gets its act together on immigration. Um, we benefit tremendously and uh as a destination country if somebody's thinking I want a better life I want to come to I want to come to the United States but damn I can't get in pivot north my friends pivot north right and uh and I'll come back to and we're pretty unapologetic about that um I do want to acknowledge that that COVID has had a disproportional impact on newcomers to Canada. And the sectors that are hit hardest by the downturn in the economy, by the effects of the pandemic, are sectors that have been most welcoming and easy to access for newcomers to Canada. So for migrant women in particular, this is a hard sell. And we need to watch this. We need to watch what's happening in the economy. We need to make sure that newcomers are not... going to continue to be disenfranchised. There is no magic bang when things will come back. It is a gradual recovery. I think at some point a few years from now, we may all go, oh yeah, it's kind of over. And uh, But I think that's going to be a long pathway to get there. So we've got to watch and we've got to make sure those shortcomings are acknowledged and that our instruments are able to focus on that, our policy instruments and our supports are able to focus on that. You know, it, it, in here, I, I think this will be the last thing I'll say. Sort of. Um, we all had to pivot and on how to run a system. So for at the IRCC, we took an organization that was incredibly paper-based, incredibly place-based, and we had to pivot overnight to something that was not. And, you know, some areas were easier than others. Some it took us a little longer. But I also want to give a shout-out to settlement colleagues so we run, we fund uh, settlement organizations across Canada to deliver our mandate in this area, and they had to do the same thing. And, uh, and where we've been able to do that, I think it's been really effective, and I also think in many cases it's been better client service. It has been for us in a number of cases and like, I'm not going back online citizenship tests. I'm not going back. Um, some virtual ceremonies, we may do a mix in the future, but we're not going back. Like this is just better client service and where we want to move the rest of our organization on that. Like, I think it's key. And I think that's part of that competitive advantage and what we want to do. Um, The other, Glenn touched a little bit on this, but I'll touch more on it. The other thing, I'll come back to running 401,000 permanent residents in the middle of a pandemic. So it was who's here and where can we focus on our people who at that point could enter the country? Maybe they were already here. And so what were the rules we wanted to break? What did we need to test to make this, we thought, work? And so there were two things. The first is guardian angels. And so this was the program for caregivers uh, that started really out of Quebec. It's a national program. Um, and so we looked, many of those uh, people who were working in long-term care facilities, particularly in Quebec, were asylum seekers. And so, regardless of status, um, what was a pathway to permanent residence? And uh, we'll examine this for a while to come, I'm sure but generally I think it's been pretty positive. And the second was in our vernacular, TR to PR, uh temporary resident to permanent residence and where you wanted to smooth some of those pathways. And so one focused on an easier pathway for international students. I would argue they do pretty well under the system anyway, but an easier pathway for students, I should say, <laughs> sorry, students who have graduated. It's okay. And, um, The second is um, um, essential workers. So this is a test, like it's a pilot. And uh, to see how this works, and it included seasonal agricultural workers, and included workers in other essential areas. And what we'll be watching closely of this are what are the outcomes. So how do people do? Um, what's their mobility like in moving from one job to another? Um, how do they continue to integrate into society and integrate into communities? And these are things, these are lessons for us. And, you know, and I say this with a bit of humility on, are these, better pathways around essential workers are they going to be as good as the pathways that we have talked about for a long time around high-skilled workers and so that's a big question anyway truly i'll stop
1: that's that's really great thanks so much katrina um dimitri i got a small question and a big question for you the small question I also make comments? Um, well you'll get it as a chance in in, in <laughs> okay because that's going to be the big question <laughs> the small question is I know you really have your ear to the ground in terms of what uh, a whole bunch of different um, countries are thinking in terms of migration policy. Are you hearing any feedback about Canada's rather bold and ambitious plans to, to resume quickly? Uh, and uh, if you are, what what does that sound like? What, are, are, are people um, thinking maybe it's uh, too ambitious? Are they thinking maybe, maybe, maybe they're envious that Canada can do that? I don't know, but be very curious to hear that. That's the small question. And the big question is do you have any comments <laughs> <laughs> on the resumption of, of economic immigration as we move out of the pandemic hopefully soon so here I may surprise you
3: um, on this small question and I may have said this in different words Canada is thought of both as an exemplar and an outlier okay at the same time, uh, those countries that think an exemplar, they pick on the one thing that they like about Canada, which is, of course, the high quality immigrants, the point system that they're struggling, they don't understand it, they don't understand what the mechanics of it are. What kind of effort do you need to put? And how do you start a big program like that? So a lot of these countries, and particularly the European Union, is just ambitious about that. An ambition is not going to develop a program or deliver a program. Um, The things that the exemplar part is sort of like a bit of awe. How are they doing it? How come there is, and it's not about the numbers, but, you know, it is at the end of the day about the numbers. Why don't they have, you know, a reaction to all this? How come you don't have a party or part of a party that simply feeds off of this anti-immigrant animus? Okay, and they're trying to sort of figure it out, uh, but they don't want to go too deeply into this because... Immigration doesn't run into the bloodstream of these countries. They are the relative newcomers, newcomers in the sense that they have acknowledged the importance and value of immigration and how deeply immigration has now become embedded in their countries. You know, I mean, this is a phenomenon of less than 20 years in a place like Germany. And Germany, between first and second generation, what they call them, of immigrant background, whatever the heck is that. But anyway, you know, is now somewhere in the high teens, low 20s. And there are other countries, your Sweden, your Netherlands and all that, are much more, you know, immigrant dense. That's what I call that. Immigrant dense than one thinks. Okay, nobody reaches the 20, 21% or the 24, 25% of Australia, That these are numbers that, you know, they're not even, you know, willing to discuss. Plus the definition of whom we count in the 20% or 24%, and what they count is, you know, definitional issues are maddening, complex. So, this is, and it's something that we're going to discuss in the afternoon panel, so... A warning to you, Phil. <laughs> um, this is something that, you know, we have to really consider and think really hard about. But let me tell you some of the problems that we have in the United States. We actually have programs that are running that are completely lost in the chaos and the arguments about what's happening at the border, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the program the program from temporary to, pr- to permanent. Back in 1990, in a massive piece of legislation, we, we were the first country to systematize what I call a bridging program. And since I, that time, I, I had a very heavy hand in drafting and and. Uh, Whatever you know, advocating for legislation from inside of the administration, I was the lead. Okay, it was you know something that I took pride in, and indeed we have that program. But let me tell you how that program has developed. We bring in, you know, numbers don't matter, but they're not vast numbers. You know, we play games. You know, we say it's, we only take sixty-five thousand people on the H-1B program. Well, that's a lie. You know, we take about 150,000. The reason that we take 150,000 is because then we have a special program for people with advanced degrees. And the greatest value of smart immigration lawyers, they advocated and succeeded to not count certain types of H 1Bs toward the ceiling. So when Andrew hires somebody from you know, out of the country, that doesn't count against either the 65 or the 85. 65 from 20. And all of this is lost in the argument about yes or no about immigration, in the argument about the border. If you really wanted to have a perfect, you know, example of how not to do immigration, move south. But don't just come and visit. <laughs> Let me also say something about uh, occupations that uh, Americans or Canadians or Europeans will not take. There's no country on earth, even the country that I was born in, which was a poor country in the 50s and 60s before I came here. All of the fishing work was done by foreign workers. We didn't realize that there were foreign workers, but they they were not Greeks. Why? Because this was places, the kinds of work that people died doing. Okay? So let's jump to agriculture. Is there any, and I mean any, possibility that you can return, you know, people, locals, including recent immigrants, to do agricultural work? You know, the Japanese had the saying about, about jobs that are difficult, dangerous, the three ds I don't remember what the third Thirty. Dirt. Okay? No. So why don't we just say... We understand that these occupations will not be done by Americans and other immigrants. Why don't we develop a system that does logical things, make us feel feel pretty good about ourselves, protects people, creates opportunities for people who will do these jobs, and why don't we create a five-year visa where you can do agricultural work in the United States? If you tie them to a specific employer, There's going to be exploitation, but because the employer pays the costs of the the initial costs of that, you say, okay, for six months or twelve months, you know, you have to work with this employer. And then if you can show cause, you can create a small, you know, sort of group of people that can judge these things, say, Okay, this is exploitative. We're gonna sue the hell out of this employer, and you're free to work in agriculture or just a visa that allows you to work in agriculture anywhere. There are solutions to these problems. You know, back in 2007, 8, eight 6, I don't remember, we had a big commission, and, you know, the Wilson Center, and, and, <laughs> and Andrew was part of this, and his, the head of the Wilson Center was a very famous uh, uh, former congressman, Hamilton and we had people from the administration and kennedy all of these names and you know some smart people and we wrote a massive report all of the things that everybody could possibly think about doing on immigration is there all of these transitional visas you know sort of liberate people from this either or reintroduce something that tightened the borders created which is <laughs> People who wanted to go back and forth were forced. They were locked in because of policy decisions that we made. You know, Carlos was talking about unintended consequences, and I always hate that expression. And had arguments with my friends in the academy. Why? Because I testified before Congress, and I said, you know, if you do this are going to force people to make a choice. So it's not really unintended. It's you don't want to listen to what is going to happen. So all of these things are important. If we're going to build a better system in the United States, we're
1: going to have to basically
3: you know, tell the truth about many of these things. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. Okay, so I see Anja is getting some questions. So I was going to ask a third question, but I think I will dispense with that because we don't want the session to go on too long. What I will do instead is pass it over to you, Anja, uh, maybe pose a couple of the questions you've been receiving.
4: Sure. Thanks, Dan. Lots of really great engaging questions. Um, Let me start off with questions that come from the observation that Canada is often used as a, you know, Kind of the North Star in terms of its immigra- management of immigration, but what about its treatment of indigenous people? And so a number of questions, and this takes us back to your opening statement in terms of the land acknowledgement that we started out with today. In terms of what, this is, these are questions um, to you, Katrina. Um, how does IRCC see its role in truth and reconciliation? And are there consultations um, with indigenous peoples on questions of, you know, borders, settlement?
2: Yeah. Thank you. A really good question. So we're responsible for three of the 93 recommendations from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So some of these, you know, well, one is um, changing the oath of citizenship uh, to include um, a reference to treaty rights and references to Indigenous peoples in Canada, to First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples. The other is updating our citizenship guide. We were so close, so close. Um, so we continue to try and update our citizenship guide, which is really the de facto public history of Canada, and, uh, and to make sure that that reflects well the history of Indigenous people in Canada. Uh, The third um, is being able to use your own name, being able to use your Indigenous name on your passport and your identity documents. And, uh, And then there are the broader questions of how we work to bridge the gap between newcomers and Indigenous peoples in Canada. And uh, and this one, this one is one we still have a lot of work to do. And I'm happy to point to some great practices. Um, I'm happy to point to the inclusion of of uh, indigenous elders um, when it comes to our citizenship ceremonies. But more to the point, it's things that some of our service provider organizations are doing. So I'll come to the I'm always going to get the name wrong uh, Catholic immigrant. Uh, settlement Services in Calgary and uh, and where they purchased a plot of land to do gardening and to do gardening with newcomers to Canada. But they did it in a way where they brought in, um, uh, in, in local Indigenous people to talk about the relationship between Indigenous people and the land and how important that was and the connection that forms between those two communities. The more specific question was, do we consult? Absolutely. Um, we consult with Indigenous peoples uh, when we set our levels plan uh, with organizations and certainly on border issues. And uh, as you can imagine, sometimes those are contentious and uh, on things even like proof of vaccine credential. And, uh, and where we go from there. You know, could we do better? Absolutely. And, uh, and I think this is where, you know, as an organization, we want to foster on this. The other, and then I'll just, you know, make a plea as an employer. Um, you know, it's an organization, IRCC is an organization of about 10,000 people. And uh, we have strong representation from uh, racialized communities. We do not have strong representation from indigenous communities, from indigenous peoples inside of our workforce. And that's a key area for us in terms of, uh, of making sure that we better reflect Canada in terms of what we're doing around that. And, uh, and I think all of this works in concert as uh, as we help to foster and build a better relationship between newcomers and indigenous peoples.
1: Thanks. What I suggest, um, let's like just go five minutes extra, if we could. And Anja, if you could just find your two favorite questions, something like that, and give them both to the panelists and see where we go.
4: OK, so one question that we didn't get to address this morning is the question of of, of Afghanistan. And um, a question for you, um, Katrina, to speak on plans of the Canadian government for Afghan refugees and p- questions of prioritization. And maybe, Dimitri, speak briefly on kind of your assessment so far on the Biden's um, handling of refugee resettlement and their plans. So that's the first question, um, Afghani refi- Afghan refugees. And the second is a very local question, um, and that is, um, Katrina, wanting you to speak to the status of the municipal nominee program Um, That was in the 2019 mandate letter. What is happening with that?
2: I'm going to start with the municipal nominee program because that's the easy one. Um, uh, An election got in the way. What happened to that one here? Uh, So uh, we're well underway. Uh, We had long and I would say really productive consultations with our our, uh, PT counterparts and others in the community i think we've got a pretty good plan on how we want to proceed on this we continue to think it's really important and uh yeah and an election got in the way so stay tuned and uh it won't uh, it won't disappear stay tuned this one's coming and uh, and i think it's going to be really positive uh afghanistan oi um this this one is really tough, and so let me talk about uh, what the government's bold ambition is with respect to Afghanistan, and then just talk about some of the challenges and uh, and where we are. So first, we're really proud of the government's bold ambition here, and we're looking at refugees from Afghanistan in a couple of different forms. So one is those who served Canada in Afghanistan. So, Canada had a military presence in Afghanistan uh, up until about 2012, and and we certainly had diplomatic presence in Afghanistan up until two months ago. And so, those who serve Canada, um, either through the mission or through the military presence when they were there, uh, we have special immigration measures. We are bringing them to Canada as as, uh, government-assisted refugees. We have about 3,000. Uh, who uh, who we have resettled so far. Uh, that number will go up considerably um, as applications are in and as we figure out safe passage, which is one of the biggest challenges for Canada in Afghanistan. On top of those commitments, the government made a commitment uh, just before the election to 15,000, 7,000 private-sponsored refugees and 8,000 government-assisted refugees and uh, and that focus is on women leaders, human rights defenders, LGBTQ um, two I activists in Afghanistan, uh, journalists. And, uh, and to making sure uh, that Canada could offer a place of safe refuge. And when the program was announced uh, just before the campaign started, it was over two years and focused on those who've been able to leave Afghanistan, a more traditional refugee resettlement movement. And what the what we saw from from this government um, was a notion to move that up to 40,000. And so there's some questions for us on... Um, on a little over what period of time, uh, but on some of the challenges as well. So the challenges, there are challenges and successes. So first, some of the big successes. So I've talked about 3,000 that have come to Canada so far and have been resettled. Um, We're now starting to see numbers come from the other 15,000 that we've talked about. So we're up to, I think, about 500 in that count. But the biggest challenge is getting people out of Afghanistan. Uh, there are no commercial flights coming out of Afghanistan. Uh, there are some small flights with uh, the Qataris and with the Pakistanis, but in terms of regular commercial flights or even charters, not so much. Um, getting over the land borders, uh, Afghanistan isn't exactly blessed by good neighbors. And uh, so the stands, Tajikistan, um the others turkmenistan um uh, those borders are pretty firmly closed uh with the pakistanis the border's a little bit open but only under certain circumstances and it's not exactly the easiest route to get to the pakistani border and then the other big one is iran and so from canada's perspective it's not you know necessarily helpful And uh, so the challenge remains getting people safely out of Afghanistan, that safe passage out of Afghanistan, which is why we were happy to cooperate with our uh, American colleagues who had bigger capacity during the airlift out of Afghanistan in the last days than we did much bigger, like by a factor of a hundred than we did to get people out of the country. And so they said to us, okay, if we can move out, people and hold them in a third country can you resettle and we said okay if you can do that we can resettle so here are our criteria here's what we want to look at i'll come back to the same list human rights defenders women leaders lgbtqi activists right it's the same list i just talked about and so using the u.s as a resettlement partner and uh, and being able to resettle well from third countries so in other words We can do security screening, we can do biometrics, we can do medicals, we can operate this in a very safe and effective way and offer protection. And I think that's really important. So we've been looking at some non-traditional resettlement partners that way. The government of the United States would be one, NATO might be another, uh, but also working with... um, human rights defender organizations, protectdefenders.eu, And I'm going to forget the name of the other. And I've morphed them into one in my head. I call them protect and defend, but these are really credible organizations, resettlement organizations that deal with the type of situation we're talking about in Afghanistan and bending our rules. I can't remember who said it about the slavish following of rules that were set on refugees in like 1947. So, working with these groups on getting people out of Afghanistan directly and bringing them here. And we will continue to work with our more traditional partners with UNHCR, of course. Um, But those are the big, those are the big issues uh, around Afghanistan. And then finally, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about our capacity to resettle well and, uh, and the strains in the system when it comes to resettling folks. And the toughest one, uh, like I sit here in British Columbia and say this, in Vancouver, the toughest one is housing. You all know that. And uh, and so with larger families coming out of Afghanistan, finding affordable housing for a family of eight, good luck. And so for our settlement organizations, our, our refugee assistance provider organizations, this is key, being able to do that and being able to do it well. So it does no good to sort of dump 40,000 refugees inside of Canada in a month um, and not be able to resettle them properly and not to make sure that they have the best possible chance of success in their new country. That's the other challenge. I'll turn it
3: over to Dimitri. No, I, I, I only want to actually uh, say something that's uh, quite positive. Um, because the United States, of course, was had such a vast presence and for so long in Afghanistan, Afghan refugees and paralyses, you know, uh, for the rest of the audience, the United States decided just the last few days that... People who are paroled into the country, the Afghans who are paroled into the country, will have access to the same refugee benefits as regular refugees. So they have friends in high places. So it's not about civil society just mobilizing. It is... You know, all these people who have served in the military, all of these gigantic organizations that were that had such a heavy presence over there, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of these people are already speaking English and have some sort of connection with what the West might look like. But this does not mean so Biden and the administration may actually have a win for some that was a complete chaotic situation. But what we need to really think much harder about is money. Now, the United States is in the business of printing money now. There's, you know, they have a big (laughs) printing machine and they're printing trillions. They better share some of that with cities Mm
1: -hmm.
3: and with, you know, sort of regional governments and with state governments and all that because this is not going to be inexpensive and yes, by having communities and individuals sponsor that's a, a, a newcomers it's a smart way to sort of create a better environment for them but guess what after a very little time the cost get socialized the government will have to pick up this thing so. If you're going to bring the numbers that I think at the end of the day are likely to come to the United States, you better make sure that there is some sort of a per head, you know, something, in other words, that the, you know, states and localities will be able to access and don't create blockages in that particular system.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you, audience, for being patient. But can we please just give a great round of thanks to both Katrina and Dimitri?